Well, we're going to be in Nahum uh, chapter 1, verses 7 to 15, and the, uh, the, I want to begin with an expression, kind of a way just to think about this text, and the expression is one that I think you'll know. Uh, the expression is uh, connecting the dots. You know that expression probably, right? You, you know what it is. It's an expression and it's a thing. Uh, the thing is a puzzle on a piece of paper, right, with dots that you, you connect and they make, like, usually for kids, usually they're quite simple, but uh, they can also be quite complex. And so just to make sure I thoroughly researched everything for the sermon today, I did a lot of research by Googling the most amazing uh, connect the dots that I could find. And uh, here's one of them. Uh, this was created by a man named uh, Thomas uh, Pavitt, I think his name is. He's from Australia. And uh, this, this is the image he created. It has 6,239 dots. And he had a computer program generated. I don't know how he did that. Uh, but after he generated it, he printed it out on a big poster paper, and then he spent uh, nine and a half hours completing it. So here's him uh, completing, connecting all of the dots, and the end result is this, uh, the Mona Lisa, very angular, kind of geometric Mona Lisa. So if you're wondering, uh, ladies, yes, he's still single. I, I think we can pretty, be pretty sure of that, that uh, a guy would spend that amount of time doing that is, yeah. So, uh, kind of fascinating. Uh, connect the dots are fun, but in real life, uh, connect the, connecting the dots is uh, kind of a, it's an important thing. Uh, to connect the dots means to take a bunch of different ideas and see how they fit together. Uh, we talk about this in terms of maybe things that we're thinking about, right? We might say, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure yet what I think about the election. I'm, I'm still connecting the dots. I'm still trying to figure it out. Uh, it's an expression that we use for all sorts of things and even in terms of our own lives. Connecting the dots of our own life reveals a, a, the picture. It puts together all the different parts of our life so that we see the big picture of what it means. And I think we know it's not always easy to do this. Very often we find ourselves wanting to connect the dots of our life but not being able to do it. And usually it's because we can't quite see how certain things fit together. One of the great values of the Bible is that it helps us to connect the dots. Uh, it helps us by uh, correctly labeling the different things in our life, by, by labeling those dots and then seeing how they relate to the other things so that a picture forms. Uh, this is very much what the book of Nahum is all about, especially this section. Because here in Nahum, it's, it's a prophet from God going to speak to God's people about the Ninevites, who are not God's people. And so you have uh, this message that is really to two different groups of people, those who follow God and those who oppose God. And what Nahum does is help them and help us to connect the dots between those two things, to see what happens when we live a life in opposition to God or when we live a life following God. So I'm going to read through the text, and as I do, uh, you'll notice that uh, the prophet kind of, he kind of mixes up the, the two people that he's speaking to. He, do, he, he does sort of both at the same time. There's a lot of you's and a lot of they's. And when you look at the context, you can see who he's talking to. But just for the sake of uh, better understanding, I'm going to insert. Either he's speaking to Nineveh, that's the one group. Nineveh is the enemies of God, those opposing God. Or Judah. Judah are, are the people of God. Those who are seeking to follow in his ways. So I'm going to read through the text, inserting those kind of names so that we can understand what is being said, and then we'll pull it apart. So here's God's word to us this morning, beginning in verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. 
But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you, Nineveh, plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they, the Ninevites, are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you, Nineveh, came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, Though they, the Ninevites, are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off of you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you, Nineveh. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. That's God's word to us this morning. Uh, clearly, I uh, hope you see about these sort of two groups of people. And so our three points for our sermon are going to be uh, also about those two groups of people. Uh, the first point is about those who oppose God. And the second two are about those who follow God. Uh, the first one will be a little longer. The second two uh, a bit shorter. Uh, what you might have noticed is that verse 7, uh, if you were here last week, we, we still dealt with verse 7. Verse 7 is kind of a bridge between the first part of the chapter that's talking about the character of God and then the second part, which is talking about how we live. So let's look at verse 7. It says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. And so there you see him referencing uh, his people, those who find refuge in God, those who turn to God. God is a blessing and a help to them. But then right away, there's a contrast. In verses 8 and 9, we see a contrast, and now the focus is on those who oppose God. And what we see is our main point. It's this. Those who oppose God will meet a complete end. We see this language in verses 8 and 9. Uh, here it is. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you, Nineveh, plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. So you notice there that God is speaking about Nineveh and very clearly calling them his enemies or his adversaries. Uh, if you remember uh, or know some of the, like what the Ninevites are like, this is not a surprise. These are not good people. These are very evil, violent, wicked people. They are a nation that has been oppressing all of the countries around them for generations. They're brutal. They're, they're very violent with those that they conquer. And so God is rightly saying, look, you are a group of people that don't follow my ways. You've turned your back on my commandments. You've, you've turned your back against just human decency and goodness. And more than that, they, are, they have actually turned their back on the mercy and grace of God. So at the beginning of Jonah, we kind of looked at the timeline of world history that we're dealing with right now. And I want to look at that again to remind ourselves how much God has tried to reach out to the Ninevites just so we see the story. So here's our timeline. And uh, you'll notice that it's from about 900 BC to about 600 BC. Uh, the Assyrians have been a major world power for, for hundreds of years. Uh, they went through a, a period of weakness because of some internal turmoil. But even then, they were the biggest kid on the block. And during that time, God sent Jonah, reluctant Jonah, who did a really poor job of giving the message. But the message was, hey, um, 
God knows about your evilness. And if you don't turn, if you don't repent, he's going to destroy you. And, and so that's what happened. Jonah came, right, sort of about 750 BC, and the response was immediate. The, the, the Ninevites, they repented. They repented. They, they turned from the evil ways. God spared them. That's the end of the book of Jonah. It's amazing. And you'd think that that would mean, man, that, that nation, they must have been blessed by God. But in fact, what happened is that because they were blessed by God, they kind of got back up on their feet. They went into a time of strength again. And in that strength, they forgot about the mercy of God. And so they turned back to their evil and violent ways. In fact, they went and they attacked Israel, the, the, the people of God, and they destroyed Israel. This was in uh, 722 BC. Nineveh destroyed Israel, uh, killed a lot of people, took a lot of people into exile, and they continued on in their very violent military ways all the way through till this point, which is when Nahum comes. So God sends Nahum about 660 BC, and his message now is different. See, at first it was a message of, of grace. Look, you have a chance to be spared from this destruction. Now the message is one of, of judgment. God is saying, I will make a complete end to you because you have persisted in your sin, because you have turned your back on my ways and even on the, the grace that I've shown you. It's a very dramatic, a very severe word of judgment because what we see is that God is not only just uh, bringing, bringing them to death, but also that he is going to wipe out their entire culture. Now look at verse 14. Here's what God says to them. He says, No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Some pretty harsh words. right? God is not mincing words here. He's being very clear. I'm making a grave for you. You are going to die, but... Something that would have been even more disturbing to them is that their legacy would have been cut off. In our day, we still like the idea of legacy. We, we tend to think about, you know, what is my life going to mean when I'm gone? What kind of an impact am I going to have on my family, on my community? But back then, they were consumed by it. All of the leaders, they, they wanted to be remembered for generations to come. That's why they conquered so many people and built so many things. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They loved the idea that people would remember them. And what God is, is saying here is, no one's going to remember you. No, your name, no one will talk about your name anymore. And if they do, it will only be to talk about how, in the end, you were defeated. In the end, you came to nothing. You'll notice that this is God's final word on sin. Like, like that is what he's saying here. That there is a pattern of God offering grace and redemption, and God being patient, that we see throughout the whole Bible, throughout all of human history. But there, there is a time when the answer from God is, is, look, you have rejected all of my offers of grace. Now the only thing that is coming to you is an end, is destruction, is judgment. This isn't the first time that this has happened. In fact, one of the most famous times uh, is in, we have a reference to it. If you look in verse 8, uh, look back to verse 8, it says, with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. So anyone reading that in that time, they would have said, flood, I, I know what that means. That's talking about the flood in Noah's time. Because in Noah's time, this is exactly what happened. God had created a people. They had fallen into sin. They had turned their backs on God. They wanted nothing to do with God. The whole world over was filled with people who were consumed with violence and wickedness. And God's answer is, I'm going to make a complete end. I'm going to flood the world. That is the answer to sin because you have turned your back on my ways. 
Now, in that case, there was still grace. The, the family of God, uh, the family of Noah found favor with God. But ultimately, the end will be one of destruction. That's the pattern we see in the Bible. It's where it's leading. In Revelation, you see that there is a day of judgment for all people. The Ninevites are in the category of those where there is no more second chances, where they have been offered grace, they've been offered repentance, and they have continually, again and again, opposed God. And now God is saying that, that your complete end will come. Now, when we hear a message like that, I'm not sure about you, but especially when it's in reference to an entire nation, uh, very often Christians, we kind of like the idea of trying to figure out if a certain culture is, is like, as if God has abandoned them. You, you see these people, I mean, they're on YouTube in weird places, but there's Christians who say like, the, God has abandoned the U.S., right? The America, God has cursed it. He's, with, he's removed his hand of blessing. They've gone too far down the road of sin. That's the end. Or Canada, because of this and this and this, now there's, there's no more hope. Or even for other people. We find it easier, don't we, to look around us and say to the people in our lives, look, you know what, this is, this is not good. Right here, like, you better change because I see where this is headed. We tend to have a clarity about those around us and we miss the fact that, that texts like these is not actually calling us to judge those outside of ourselves. It's calling us to examine our own lives. Because remember, this is a word about Nineveh, but it's written to the people of God. It's written so that we might see the reality of the consequences of sin. And the truth of the matter is that to be an enemy of God does not mean necessarily that you are violent and brutal. What it means is that you have a heart that loves the things that God hates. Look at here in the book of James. James is speaking to a group of Christians and he says this, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's not saying you shouldn't like, make friends with people who don't go to church. That's not what I'm saying. It's saying, though, that if you, if you develop like a close bond with the things of the world, if your heart is wrapped up in the things of the world, then you are necessarily turning your back on God. You can't have it both ways. You can't say, I love you, God, and then go and do things that he says is, is wrong. It will necessarily lead you away from God. You will have your back to him. You will be an enemy of God. But do you notice the way that James phrases this? I think it's really fascinating. He says to them, do you not know? Like, isn't this clear to you? Can't you see that, that the sin in your life is leading away from God? And the answer is, no, I, I don't think I do, honestly. I would like to, but I don't see it very clearly very often. I mean, isn't it true that, that there are things in our lives that we have just minimized or dismissed or said, you know what, I, I don't really want to deal with that. I'd rather not deal with it now. I'm sure it's fine. There are patterns of mind and patterns of heart that necessarily put us in opposition to God, and we don't, we don't see it that way. For example, what, like why do we lie instead of telling the truth? I mean, if you're, if you're a believer, if you would say, no, I want to do things God's way, why is it that in that moment you think what's going to be best for you is to, is to lie, is to not trust God? Why is it that we can't see the implications of that, of what it does to our character? Why do we uh, nurture critical thoughts towards others instead of working hard to forgive? 
Like, why is it that we can't see that to the extent that we, that we nurture critical thoughts, <laughs> we are necessarily going to lead ourselves toward greater bitterness. We don't want to be bitter people, and yet we, man, we can't see it clearly because it feels good in the moment. And so we, we tend to give into it again and again. And, and what God is saying to us, like, connect those dots. Do, do you not see that, that when you turn your, when you do that, you turn your back on God? Why do we covet the things that God hasn't given us? And, and we spend all of our time and our energy and our just hoping for those things that aren't yet ours, not trusting God in greed and in whatever it is, even good things that just are not, are not ours. Don't, can't we see where that will lead us? And the answer is no, very often we can't. We're blinded by our sin. In fact, we have a, a picture. There's a couple of verses in our text which, which sort of... Uh, give us an image of this kind of disorientation that comes with a sin-filled mind. Look at verse 10. It says, For they, that is the Ninevites, they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. So we have two images here that are kind of mashed together. There's the drunk, who we know they don't see clearly. Right? They, they, they're stumbling around. They, they, they can't really make heads or tails of anything. And then there's the image of these dry thorns which are ready for the burn pile. And you put them together, and what you get is, is a sense of confusion which leads to destruction. And that's exactly what happens in our sin. This is emphasized with verse 11, where it says this, From you, uh, Nineveh, came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. So that counselor is, uh, a lot of commentators think, it's probably like an Assyrian king. Someone whose job it was to lead them to a good place. But in fact, he led them to the worst place possible. He led them to a place where they were in opposition to God, where God's judgment was coming, coming down upon them. So they were worthless, worthless counselors. One who did not ultimately lead them to, to their good. And they couldn't just say it was an honest mistake. It's not like Nineveh could say, oh, we, we just didn't know. We kind of thought this is what you're supposed to do. We, if only someone had tell, you know, would tell us. God's word is clear. You were told. In fact, you experienced God's grace. Isn't that sometimes true of us? That we experience the grace of God, we experience his forgiveness, and then within weeks or months, we turn back and we forget. We forget where, we were, where that sin led us to. It's really, really hard for us to connect the dots of our lives, to see the big picture, but it's so important. And I think one of the reasons we don't do it is because we just... We don't want to think about the implications of our sin. I wanted to give you an illustration of the importance of, of connecting dots, of seeing the big picture, of something as devastating as sin. And so uh, I came across a website that I, th I think might help us with this. Uh, this is a very interesting website. This website is called NukeMap. Nuke, like a, like a nuclear device. Nuke Map. And it was created by uh, a scientist named Alex uh, Wellerstein. He was a, he's a professor of nuclear science. And what he did is he created a website where basically you can drop a nuke on anywhere in the world and see the fallout, see what happens. Sounds a little morbid, but this is what he did, okay? So here is NukeMap, and uh, it's a website that looks like this. You can, you know, pick wherever you want on the globe. And uh, I decided that we should probably nuke the Tri-Cities, or at least right here. So that little marker is as close as I can get it to our church building. And, um, and then what you do is you choose over here uh, the, the bomb that you want to drop. 
And they have all of the different bombs from different US, you know, the arsenals from the world. And so the one I thought we'd start with, we're going to do two, is called Minuteman 3. This is a 350 kiloton hydrogen bomb, uh, one of the, the biggest that's out there. And so with the website, you just hit detonate, and then you see uh, what happens. So this is what happens. This is what would happen if a bomb was dropped. Uh, as you would sort of expect, the whole of the Tri-Cities is, is pretty much gone. But what's interesting is that they show the concentric rings of destruction. Of course, there's the, the fatalities and injuries, which are huge. But those different rings, like that yellow part, is just is the fireball itself. The next ring is an air blast uh, that would destroy most residential buildings. Beyond that is the thermal radiation radius. This is third-degree burns up to that point. And then beyond that is the uh, air blast, which would, uh, is a little lighter. It would basically break all the windows. So if that were to happen... You know, you would see the destruction all the way into Burnaby uh, and into Maple Ridge. That's the extent of the destruction, not to mention the, uh, the nuclear fallout uh, afterwards. So with that in mind, I wanna, want you to look at a different uh, device. Uh, this device is the device, uh, it's called uh, the Fat Man. It was dropped on uh, Nagasaki. It's, it's a much smaller uh, nuke. It's a 20 kiloton conventional nuclear device. And when that one is dropped, look at uh, the difference just to see. So in that case... Uh, really the effects of it, they, they don't even go as far as like Austin Heights. I live up around um, Blue Mountain, and I, I guess we'd be fine in a sense. Uh, it's interesting, right? It, now, uh, if you wonder why he made this, right? It, it seems a bit morbid. Is he making light of this kind of devastation? The answer is no. No, the reason he made this is because he works with people who create a policy around nuclear arms with countries all the time. And what he noticed is that, by and large, most people, when you want to talk to them about what would happen if there was a nuclear war, most people check out completely. They don't even want to think about it. If you say, look, we should think about you know, how we can ensure sur survivability, they would say, look, if there's a nuclear war, we're all dead. What does it matter? Why should I even think about it? And what his point is that depending on the device, it actually has a much different range of destruction. And, and there are things that you can do to survive. He points out that with the Nagasaki bomb, they found that those who simply ducked and covered, that just that simple thing, they were exposed to far less radiation, far less a death. Deaths were those that just were, were shielded from the initial radiation blast. See, the reason I point that out is because when we're talking about sin, we are talking about an even greater destructive force, one that has even greater fallout. And yet, for many people, we don't even want to think about it. We would rather just, if it's sin in our own lives and we're a believer, we would rather keep it closed off. Or if we're not a believer, we might have a response of something like, you know, I'm not really sure if there's a God out there, but I, I can't really figure it out. I'm gonna, I'll deal with it later. Or if there's a heaven and a hell, I'm, I'm going to hope for the best. There's incredible fallout from sin, and yet most of us don't really want to deal with it. That's the mindset that the Ninevites had. They were in, mired in sin, and yet their mindset was not one of wanting to examine their lives. They didn't want to see where that might lead. Now look back in verse 12. You kind of get a glimpse of their mindset. Verse 12 says, Though they are at full strength, and many they will be cut down and pass away. So just think of the, the mindset of the Assyrians. They were not worried about where life was going. If you'd ask them to kind of, you know, describe the, their life and where things were going, they're like, things are great. Look, we're the most powerful nation in, on the globe. We have wealth, we have strength. 
they were not concerned at all because they weren't correctly identifying the dots that made up the picture of their life. And what we see here from God is that the answer they needed to to see clearly is that there will be a complete end, that there will be judgment for all who oppose God. And, And God wants for all of us to recognize that. For those of us who who are believers, to to say, you know what, I I can't leave that sin and just ignore it. Because like we saw in in the nuke map demonstration, even a small nuke is incredibly destructive. Huge casualties. The, The same is true for any sin in our life. We are foolish if we think that we can have sin, consistent, persistent sin, and have it have no effects. Now this doesn't mean that, I mean, if we're struggling with it, we're battling with it, praise God. That's what God's calling us to. But if we're ignoring it, then we're foolish. We're not recognizing the fallout that will come. And for those that have no concept of, of God or judgment, this is a word that's meant to, to push you to consider. Will there be a day of judgment? What, will there be answer for the evil of the universe? And what if it is what the Bible says it is? What hope do you have? See, those who oppose God will meet a complete end. But thank, thankfully, we are not at that point in human history where the second chances are spent. There is opportunity for grace and hope, and we see that in the text, because God is speaking to those that follow God. And what we're going to see is that there are, are two things about those who follow God, uh, two areas of, of really hope. Uh, the first is this. Those who oppose God will meet a complete end, but those who follow God will be afflicted. The last word is probably not what you thought I would say. Afflicted, that there will be difficulty and turmoil. You probably thought I would say those who follow God will be loved, will be blessed, will be cuddled and snuggled. And that is true. That's the third point. The third point is that the people of God will be cuddled and snuggled. But but what's interesting is that throughout the Bible, um, it's always very clear that the road to following Jesus or following God in this instance is not a smooth road. It's filled with difficulty and trials. And what we see here in the text is that this actually happens by the hand of God. So look back at the last part of verse 12. Here's what it says. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off of you and will burst your bonds apart. There's a couple things interesting there. Uh, For for one, it's very clear that this is to Judah. Because Judah is the one who's in bondage. Not, not Nineveh. So this is speaking to God's people. But do you notice, you would think that this would say, um, though Nineveh has afflicted you, Nineveh will afflict you no more. I will save you. I, I'm the Lord. But that's not what it says. It says, I, I, God, have afflicted you, and I will afflict you no more. And you have to wonder, that, why would God do that? How, how does that even make sense? Well, it makes sense in terms of God's sovereign hand because while there are many difficulties in our lives, in this case, there are nations warring against nations. There's these big things going on. The truth of the matter is that God's hand, God's sovereign hand is behind it all. And if the question then is, well, why would he do that? The answer that that is clear in the Bible is in the, the picture of God as our father, as God as a loving father one who disciplines his children. 
There's a, a verse in the book of Psalms. Now, you, you see this idea that God brings difficulty and turmoil into our lives to shape us and correct us throughout the Bible. But this is one example where it's made very clear, the, the connection there. So here's Psalm 119, verse 67 to 68. The psalmist says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. So here's someone who is a, one of God's children saying, look, before you afflicted me, Lord, I went astray. I turned my back on your commands, whatever that looked like in his life. But now, because of your discipline, because of the difficulty you brought into my life now, now I follow your commands. Why? Because his character was shaped. Because probably in that affliction, he saw the error of his ways. Isn't that often what happens in turmoil and difficulty that we're brought to our knees? That we see clearly those things that we couldn't see even a day before? We couldn't see our pride. We couldn't see where our, our waywardness is leading us. We couldn't connect the dots. And yet God brings difficulty or turmoil and we're brought to the end of ourselves. And we realize that we need the Lord. That in our sin, we are going to destroy our own lives. And that judgment is coming. See, the affliction of God is what a good parent does. A good parent always disciplines their children. Because children are immature. Children are full of sin. Children need their character to be shaped. And God has done this over and over again throughout the Old Testament for his people. And he continues to do it today. See, what this tells us is that there are two groups of people in this passage. Those who oppose God. Those who follow God. But it's not the, the good guys and the bad guys. Every, everyone has sin. Even God's people have sin. The difference, though, is that the people of God have experienced the grace of God. They have a relationship with God. And, and they see that God is working in their lives. That his answer to them is not a complete end, but I'm going to afflict you, I'm going to shape you, I'm going to lead you to grow you in good character. This is still what he's doing today. In fact, it may be what he's doing right now. It may be that for some of us, there, there's, a, there's a time of affliction time of difficulty right now. Now we have to be careful. Just because there's difficulty in our lives does not mean that we are in sin, necessarily. That's what Job's friends thought. If it's difficult for you, then you must have done something wrong. It's not always the case. But sometimes it is. It's helpful and healthy for us to examine our own lives. That's what, that's what God wanted the people of Judah to do. They, they had been unfaithful. They had been going after other gods. And, and so God was wanting them to realize there's only one source of hope. Do you see? It's, it's loving of God. It's loving and good of God to push us, to recognize the foolishness of our wayward hopes and, and dreams and to turn our attention to him, the only one who can fully satisfy us. And the encouragement here, the hope here, is that the time of affliction is limited. It's, it's not like the complete end that comes to the Ninevites for all of eternity. The affliction is limited and is purposeful. See, those who follow God will be afflicted but, but not abandoned. Those who follow God will be convicted but not condemned. In fact, the affliction itself is a sign that God is at work, that he really loves his people, that he loves you, and he wants to shape you further and further into the character of Christ. So yes, those who follow God will be afflicted. But that affliction points forward to an even greater good news, a greater hope. And that's our third point. Those who follow God will receive good news. 
Now, in this case, uh, there's a very immediate good news that's coming to them. The Ninevites who've been oppressing them are going to be wiped out. That's the good news. The bonds, if they're actually in chains, are going to be, they're going to be set free. The Babylonians, God's going to send them to destroy them. They're set free. But that is not the ultimate freedom that this text is pointing to. Uh, we see language of eternal blessing, of eternal hope. Now, if you look at verse 15, it says this. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Never again. There's good news, there's peace, but it's not in this immediate help. It's in a greater messenger because there has to be a way in which there will never again be evil in your life. Never again will the worthless and the the violent, the oppressors, none of that will be present in your life anymore. How is that possible? Only through the work of God in our lives. Only through the coming of his son. Because Jesus is the one who, who finally freed us from the ultimate destructive force in our life, which is sin. If you remember at Christmas, we celebrated that good news. Remember the angel talking to the shepherds? We're like, what is going on? The angel said, look, fear not. For behold, <clears throat> I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jesus is the ultimate good news. He is the one who brings everlasting peace with God. He's the one who frees us from bondage to sin and is our source of hope because he is the one who took the condemnation of God upon himself so that now all of the judgment of God, there's not a complete end for us. He came back to life. He showed that sin need not be our end when we have faith in him. It begins with the salvation of God, but it continues on through our whole life. You see that also in our text, because the word to Judah is, hey, hey Judah, keep your feasts, fulfill your vows. To them, that would have meant, oh, celebrate the Passover. Do, do all the things in your calendar year that remind you about who God is and what he's done for you. And go and sacrifice. That was their way of worshiping the Lord for us. Now, we don't need to sacrifice. Jesus has done all of that for us. We do still have an opportunity to live for God, though, which means that we are in a place where we can be blessed by God. We can be obedient by being in his word, by being in prayer, by gathering with the people of God and looking to fulfill the commands of Christ. See, if you think about what was going on at this time, both sets of people didn't quite see things properly. Like if you had asked them to connect the dots in their lives, they both probably would have given the wrong answer or, or an inaccurate answer. To the Ninevites, if you'd said, like, what, what is your life about right now? They would have said, man, this, this is the best. Everything's going great. Or if you notice all the people we just conquered yesterday and tomorrow we have plans for, for them and, and we're strong, we're, everything is great. And if you said, well, where do you think this is going to lead? I don't know, but it, it can only be good. But they were headed for destruction. They couldn't see it. They couldn't see clearly. For the people of God, though, they were, it was kind of similar. Because if you would have asked them to connect the dots of their life, they probably would have said, I, I'm not, I don't know. It's been really hard for a long time. I, I kind of feel like maybe God has forgotten about us. All, all this difficulty, all this oppression, like I, I can't see God's blessing anywhere in my life. And yet they were exactly where God wanted them. 
that God was shaping them and convicting them. They couldn't see that the road they were on actually led to eternal blessing. God's immense peace and hope in their lives. See, that's the challenge for us, is to actually make sense of the components of our life and to make changes, to, to chart our course so that we will be on the right path. I mean, if you tweak the metaphor of a connect the dots, you, you get um, a map, right? Like a, a map plotting a course is just to connect the dots in a straight line. I don't know if you remember, but we had these things called maps at one point. They were like made of paper. And what you would do is you would like chart a course. You would put a dot here and then another dot. And you'd say, I want to go from here to there. You had to know where you were going. You had to be able to see the course. Even now with our GPS, there are people in my lives that use them and still get lost all the time. <laughs> Why? Because they have the wrong, they, they put in the wrong coordinates. They put in the A&W, you know, and in Kamloops instead, and so they just were listening to the voice that was telling them in their car where to drive, and they went on the number one, and they're like, I don't know where I am. Like, you, you still need to look. You still need to see where you're going. And that's true for us, too. Like, in our lives, whether we're believers or not, the question is, where are you headed? What, what is the connection between the, the way that you're living now and where it's going? What is the big picture? Can, can you connect the dots? And do you see where God is leading you? Next week, next week, uh, Nahum, he zooms in really close. He's gonna, we're going to see the destruction of Nineveh right up close. He does it on purpose to kind of shock us, to, to make us examine our lives. But today, he zooms way back. Today, he's calling us. God is prompting us to look at the big picture of our life and say, man, do I, do I know where this is leading? Are there changes that need to be made? Because praise God that this is not a day when there's a complete end to anyone here. That today is a day of, of grace and forgiveness and the opportunity to repent. And we can do it because of what Jesus has done for us. But it does require that we actually label the dots correctly. What is sin needs to be called sin. What is leading us astray, we need to recognize it for what it is and turn the other way. That's really my hope coming out of this text that we would see that the hope that is offered to us, but also that we would recognize we, we can't just walk any way we please and assume that we will end in a place of great blessing. God has charted the course. He has made a way for us, but it requires a response on our part that we might give evidence of his saving grace in our lives by making changes, by, by confession, by repentance, by, by turning and going in the right direction. So that's going to be my prayer for us, that we would heed that call and that God would work in us and through us so that many people within our community would be reached. Let me pray. Lord God, I do thank you for this text. Lord, it, it, it's, a, it's a difficult text, Lord. It's one where we see clearly that there is a point at which your grace ends and your judgment comes down. And, and Lord, the truth of the matter is that that will happen. God, there, there is an assurance that sin will be met with a complete end. Jesus, I'm thankful that that need not be the case for us. In fact, Jesus, we can be sure that you have experienced that consequence in yourself so that we might have the hope of eternal life. And God, I pray that you would give us the clarity. Help us to see how the dots connect in our life. Help us to see the picture of the life that we're living and where that leads. I pray, God, for each one here, for those that, 
that have no faith, in fact, would rather not think about the big things of God, I pray, Lord, they would see the, the fallout of that belief, the consequences that will come. And even for those of us, Lord, who who follow your ways and yet there are areas of our life where we just, we have not wanted to pay attention to the sin that is present there. I pray pray there, God, too, we would see the the consequences of that and how that will lead us astray. Help us, Lord, please. Help us, Holy Spirit, to have clarity, to have courage, to confess and repent and to trust that you will bring hope into our lives through the ministry of your spirit and the work of your son. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.